Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. What do you want to start with? You want to start with Bank of England and their growth forecast cut, or do you want to go to banks? What do you want to do? We can start with the Bank of England because we have Adam Poston on the phone standing oh, by for us. We this. do. Oh, wonderful. Peterson okay. Institute president Why don't you bring us, us in on those growth forecasts? On the phone, the Bank of England leaving interest rates unchanged at 0.75%, leaving its asset purchase program unchanged as well. I'll get you some of the details on the forecast in just a moment. I just want to get to Adam, P- Adam Poston on what is happening with the Bank of England, how on earth they're meant to respond to the global slowdown at the same time there is a Brexit debate taking place in the background. No, they can't. They can't, Jonathan. Uh, by the way, I'm in the Bloomberg Radio studio. But um, the the Bank of England at some point has to just say, A, we, we have to, where we go depends on how Brexit works out, and B, a real shock to the economy, and that's what this is, not a monetary or inflation shock, is something we can't necessarily offset. So within this is how does the institution react? If we understand Adam Posen and you and, you know, I think of John Riding and a select Danny, David Blanche Flower and a select few that really have a working knowledge of this. How does Bank of England react differently than so many of our American listeners perception of the Fed? Well, it's partly that it's a different institution, as you said, Tom. I mean, the Fed, there's just so much more freighting around the chair. As important as Governor Carney is, the MPC at the Bank of England has a lot more independence, a lot more voice than the FOMC does in members do at the U.S. And so you have the fact that when they say 9-0 unanimity at the Bank of England, it actually carries more weight. That's one thing I'd certainly emphasize. John? Let's go through some of the news, shall we? So the Bank of England cutting the 2019 GDP forecast at 1.2% versus the 1.7% forecast previously, seeing inflation at 2.1% on a two-year, three-year horizon, just slightly above the the target there. But the the growth forecast being cut, the Bank of England essentially saying that the damage being done by the Brexit situation has increased. Adam, you put it all together, it's a really difficult position for the Bank of England. The caution that a lot of people are having at the moment is Governor Carney essentially saying, we don't know what the next move would be in the event of a no-deal hard Brexit. Would it be a hike to control prices or would it be a cut to support output? Adam, can we all just assume they would just support output no. and look for and look through the price pressure? No, Jonathan, we can't. I mean, I predicted this two and a half years ago that this is where the Bank of England would end up if we got to Brexit. And Governor Carney and the MPC are being totally responsible. Basically, if, if, if you thought that the hard Brexit was going to be a one-time shock, like when the UK dropped out of the ERM in 92, you know, then the bank can say, okay, we're going to look through yeah. this. But if you think it is a regime shift, which I think it must be considered to be, and a representation of how divided and dysfunctional British politics are, then there's fundamental confidence doubts about the pound and yeah. about the viability, and so therefore you got to be well, prepared to raise. Is that I was going to go to that, Adam Posen, knowing you wanted to on pound sterling, the historic low call at 119 off of Brexit. Is the wealth destruction of pound sterling the only thing that will get the elites to wake up to getting this debate solved? 
I'm not sure. I, 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 Tom, I think we've got a real, as tight as in Little England there is between the city and the political elites, it's now out of, out of the so-called elite's hands. It's in the hands of Theresa May and her backbenchers and uh, Jeremy Corbyn and the Unite Radical Union. And those, they're determining it. And both of them, ideologically, and their, their clack, are committed to ending free movement. Uh, meaning movement of other people in Europe in and out of the UK and UK people in and out of Europe. So Adam, we've got much more to talk about than just Brexit. The European Commission out about an hour or so ago slashing forecasts for Eurozone growth and and slashing forecasts for Italy as well. The Italian one much more dramatic from 1.2% of forecast in November slashed down to just 0.2%. Futures are softer off the back of this here in the United States. Just the mood music is a whole lot more dramatic, I think, this morning. And the central bank response uncertain, not just the Bank of England, Adam. We've had the RBI, the Reserve Bank of India, with a surprise rate cut. We had Australia back away the other day, and we still struggle to get our hands around how the ECB is going to respond to a slower, gloomier outlook for the Eurozone. What's your base case, Adam? Uh, my base case is that everybody goes on hold, um, that the ECB, there'll be this uncertainty whether they raise once or, or, or mess with the deposit rate because there's this Brunermeyer backwards effect on banks, but they're, they're basically going to be on hold. I would discount the Reserve Bank of India. I mean, this is why they pushed out the previous two governors, was yeah. so that yeah. they could have a governor who would be soft on bank reform and soft on, on inflation ahead of the election. So mm-hmm. that, that doesn't represent anything. But the underlying theme, which I talked about with Tom on TV surveillance, is, is you know, Larry Summers' secure stagnation, that we've got a very low real rate of interest, very low investment demand around the world. If central banks try to raise rates, terrible things yeah. happen. I mean, I just, John, I can't, I want to squeeze in one more question, John Farrow, if I could with Dr. Posen, but John, I can't convey the shift in the last 10 weeks. And I want to say once again, folks, I, John and I were having a beverage of our choice pre-Christmas, and John, you said the year doesn't start till March 1st, and you look like a genius right now. Well, there was a lot of, happy talk, a lot of happy talk through January, of, uh, of given, growth, given, et cetera. The, given the price action. Yeah, but people were saying Larry Summers was wrong, and well, here we are. Dr. Posen, I want you to fold in secular stagnation with Greg Ipp's brilliant column today in the Wall Street Journal defining true socialism versus American redistributive policy, which is taken as socialism, but is not. Are we anywhere near a socialism that the Peterson Institute can study in America? No, we're not. I mean, it doesn't happen here. What we do have, as some people jokingly call socialism for rich people or socialism for special interests. We've got all kinds of tax breaks and subsidies for established interest groups and not going to the working poor. So, you know, socialism really nowadays means social democracy, means Western Europe, frankly. And as you've said, Tom, and many people have observed, you know, the, the, the boogeyman, as Greg Gitt points out, can be Venezuela, it can be Sweden, you know, and it's socialized medicine. You know, these terms don't do any work, as we say in the, in the intellectual business. What you really need is a readjustment that the U.S. is so far off the track of every other rich democracy in terms of the security it provides its citizens, in terms of the revenue it gets for its government, in terms of the public goods it provides. U.S. has to get back on track for that. Whether, as Greg Ip talks about, we're going to make it a backyard taunt or whether we're going to make it through 
demand. I don't know. But ultimately, this is not pitchforks in the streets. Uh, if there were pitchforks in the streets, they should have come out a few weeks ago when Trump officials were laughing at the yeah. furloughed U.S. workers, government workers. There's a new, thank you, Dr. Poston. The news flow, John, is just extraordinary. Adam, thank you. Adam Poston yeah. there, the Peterson Institute president. The fog of Brexit, and on the fog of Brexit, Danny Blanchflower, formerly of the MPC at the Bank of England and now at Dartmouth College. Professor, always appreciate your time. Your thoughts Great. on the fog of Brexit? I keep saying the fog of Brexit because he used the word <laughs> about 50 times, Danny. Um, your thoughts on what it all means? Well, I think um, listening to Carney at the press conference, he's clearly trying to calm nerves. I mean, he talked about fog. I mean, the worry in the fog is that uh, ships hit things. And that's obviously kind of the worry. I mean, this is a wait and see, calm nerves, worried about um, that, that, that there have been implications in Brexit already. He talked about the fact that the investment was down 3% on the year. The housing market looked to be slowing. Um, household spending was down. Um, so, and how hard it was to forecast. But this is really wait and see, calm nerves. But again, emphasizing that this is all subject to a deal that's likely to have to take place in 50 days. So you know, it's pretty tough, Dave, to be a forecaster at the MPC. Um, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's a very tough time. I mean, the last question we just had from Chris Giles says, your forecast says there's a one in four chance of a recession in the next 12 months, and it could be higher than that, couldn't it? Um, and Carney had to kind of go along with that. So I think the downside risks are substantial, but who knows? A deal could be struck. That doesn't seem very likely, um, especially given the comments of Donald Tusk, who talked about you know, the place in hell that the Brexiteers um, would go to because they had no plan. So this is the fog of Brexit, um, not really clarifying, and this is a holding pattern. But, I mean, I would have done the same. I would have, uh, I would have voted for this for this. Um, decision and just gone on hold and waited. I mean, that's where they are. And the markets are in the same position, waiting to see what the government has to say. Danny, can you draw a distinction, though, between what is Brexit induced and what is just a slowdown across the whole continent? The forecasts for UK growth, they're not great at 1.2% from the Bank of England. The European Commission has them at 1.3% for this year. Yeah. But let's be clear. The forecast from the European Commission this morning for Germany was just 1.1%. It's not as if the UK is alone here, facing slower growth in 2019. Well, no, no, I agree with that. Although I think, I mean, many commentators this morning have been out there, myself included, Howard Archer and others, saying that the EU forecast for Germany and Italy actually probably looks overly optimistic given the, the PMIs that we've yeah. seen uh, in the last few days. So, so I agree with you. There certainly looks to be slowing in Germany, right. some, perhaps even headed to recession, certainly in Italy. France looks to be slowing too. So yes, you're right that you know, there's slowing going on in Europe and it's hard to separate these things out. 
But I think the big the big issue is I mean it's the the best analogy is that you're you're in you're in London, you're headed towards Dover. Hopefully you get to the ferry, but the worry is you might be headed towards Beachy Head, which are those white cliffs. You've so lost, I agree with you've you. Lost there's, Tom there's now, generalized Danny. slowing going on in Europe. <laughs> companies and firms, companies and individuals are worried. I mean the big deal that Carney talked about was the survey from the agents suggested that half of British firms have basically made no preparations for Brexit. So that that suggests, you know, that if something cataclysmic happens and there's a no deal, well, there's going to be big implications. So I agree with you. There's generalized slowing, perhaps a really bad time uh, this year to, to actually have that decision. But none of it right. really looks that good. You know, Professor Blanchfar, first of all, I want to give you a massive victory lap. You know, it's never the why that you expect or the path that you expect, but you have absolutely nailed the idea that central banks in verbiage are going to have to retrench from moving to neutral, moving to restriction, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. But what I don't understand the degrees of freedom they have versus QE one, two, three of X years ago when right. I see the German tenure popping under a point one two new weakness there, et cetera. How close are we after Governor Carney? This is material. That was the key quote. How close are we to talks about stimulus? instead of austerity. Oh, excellent point as ever. I mean, if you look back to, to let's say we look back to August 2008, um, interest rates were in the fives. I mean, the U.S. had started to cut, but there was room to go. There was room there to was move. room to cut. Um, and the problem right now, in the U.K., interest rates are at 0.75%. Now, unclear if they could go through zero. They've never yeah. been lower than 0.25. So the ability to, on the interest rate front, if there's a cataclysmic Brexit, are limited. Obviously, the, then the question is, what, what QE could you do? And obviously, that looks like the only way they can go. And then the third thing is, what could, what could the fiscal authorities do? And obviously, we have a government that looks right now as if it couldn't really do yeah, anything. So the worry is on the fiscal front, supposing something bad happens, okay, but, would, come, would they be able to cut taxes? The worry is there's no arrows in the Okay, place. I know. But there's, the rumor in Hanover, Dr. Blanchflower, is that you teach history. Has there ever <laughs> been a time in history of our yeah. economic thought, and I'm going back pre-Smithian, where central bankers had littler room to move than they do now if we have a second bout of what Posen just called summer secular stagnation. I well, mean, this, I mean, this is all original. That, well, yeah, well, what's happened now, I think, in the last decade is because we had austerity, the fiscal guys stepped back and basically handed it over to the monetary authorities who hoped at some point that enough growth would come, they could raise rates, so the next recession, they could cut them. I mean, this is really the big issue uh, and why markets have to worry. What could the central bank do? What yeah. could the authorities do in economic terms to rescue things? And the answer is not a lot, and that's why the concern will be about the currency. I mean, obviously, there's going to be presumably downward pressure on the currency, which might well be the sort of rescuer. But it's very concerning, and, and, and Carney really didn't talk about it. I mean, the one thing they've retrenched from was they talked about if there was a if there was a sort of disastrous Brexit, the worry would be inflation would rise and they'd have to raise interest rates. Uh, a lot of us objected to that, and now Carney's saying it's not clear what our response would be. It could be in any direction. So they've had to back off that. But the worry, as you rightly say, is what would you do in the face of a big downward spiral in activity? And the answer is 
we don't really know. Maybe we'll go to yeah. negative rates. Maybe we have another huge splurge of QE. But what do you buy and what's the effect of it? So Q1 was the most effective. Q2, Q3, what if we get to Q8? I think that's a really <laughs> big worry. Hey, Danny. We can't talk about Cardiff and relegation? No, we, we won last week. We Can, won. Neil Warnock, Neil Warnock, the coach of, of Cardiff, has, um, has been very fiery recently. Yes. Very fiery. Yeah. Professor, that way. thank you so much, Professor. On, on Brexit Greatly. as well, you know. Yes. Very outspoken on Brexit. Oh, Mr. Warnock the, the, the coach of, um, of Cardiff City, oh. yeah. One of the five things you need to know, David Blanchfire, thank you so thank much. You, Look for his new book, a beautiful redux of his work on labor and wages. With us, David Malpass, uh, formerly with Bear Stearns, formerly many times on Bloomberg Surveillance, including an exceptionally important interview in 2007 with Alan Meltzer in the crucible of the crisis, of course, working with President Trump out his, his effort in New York State in Republican politics, and he has been nominated to be the new president of the World Bank Group. David, I know you expected the controversy over your nomination. I want you to address your critics right now. Why are you qualified to be the American representative to the World Bank Group? Hi, Tom. Uh, well, as you know, and from, from our long relationship, I'm deeply in, uh, in, engaged in development, in how to, how to get growth faster and how to raise living standards. That's my, my lifetime career. So 40 years working to try to see people do better. So I'm excited, thrilled about the chance to do mm -hmm. that at the, at the World Bank. Um, so we have a core mission. I've been heavily involved in the reforms uh, that are part of the capital increase of the World Bank right now. And so we'll be uh, trying to implement those reforms and helping the bank be very effective. Right. I want to get to that in a moment. It is widely understood, and folks, you literally feel it when you walk into the building next to the IMF in Washington, that there's something leveled on the bureaucracy of the Vatican. David Melpass, ages ago, 12 executive directors, 22 executive directors. I believe we're up to a count with sub-Saharan Africa of 25 directors. What can Dr. Kim of Dartmouth or David Melpass of New York, what can you do given the bureaucracy? underneath those executive directors? My view is that if we focus the mission, core mission of having people do better in the countries that are borrowing from the bank, then that will focus the staff and focus the bureaucracy. Um, and so you, you, you have to find and listen to the, to the customers of the bank, uh, to the shareholders of the bank, and to the staff, and find a way forward that makes it more effective. It can, I'm optimistic that this can be done. Well, you were optimistic in the reform that we got additional funding for the World Bank. And part of that was this fractious relationship between the U.S. and China. The World Bank, 189 countries, they give out all sorts of loans, including to China. Specify an example of a Chinese loan that doesn't pass the Trump litmus test. 
In general, uh, the World Bank has had more of its loans going for what's called budget support. Uh, and so in China, some of the loans are to far regions of China that actually need the uh, need assistance. But the question is whether the World Bank has to be the one to do it. Uh, China is, a, is the world's second largest economy. It has ample resources in private sector markets. And so to, uh, one of the things the world can help do is help China find a way that is not dependent on on multilateral organizations. One of our goals is to leave more resources for poorer countries that actually need the capital and can't get it elsewhere. I want to make clear, folks, and I always nod to Xavier Salah Martin of Columbia University, who's been definitive about the success of relieving the world of extreme poverty. That is a foundational goal of the World Bank as established by Dr. Kim uh, over the last number of years. David, I know you agree that we need to relieve extreme poverty. How do we do it within the ethos of this president of the United States? Uh, well, his ethos, I think, is very useful in that uh, the U.S. is growing strongly. That's one of the big benefits to the rest of the world. As we then look at the countries themselves, they can improve their policies one by one, and it's different in different countries how to do that. And from the standpoint of the World Bank, it can help identify where those pockets of extreme poverty are and then have a country program, an actual plan for how you can alleviate that. So again, I'm optimistic that this that more progress can right. be made on extreme poverty. I, it's a core mission of the World Bank. For all in international economics listening to this conversation, uh, Mr. Malpass, we go back to the arch-American debate, indeed Manhattan debate, of Jeffrey Sachs at Columbia and William Easterly at New York University. Easterly changed the dialogue with the white man's burden why the West's efforts to aid the rest have done so much ill and so little good. Clearly, America shifted the World Bank towards an easterly world. Are you suggesting we need to do more about accountability at the World Bank or nudge forward what Dr. Kim uh, was successful in creating? Good, good, good question. Well framed. Uh, I, I, I think what we need to do is uh, find core um, core themes that actually work in the countries themselves. So while there, uh, there, there are challenges because in the past uh, mistakes have been made and some and a lot of the aid just hasn't gotten to the people that actually need it in, the, in, mm-hmm. in uh, these countries. So we need a better program to find ways to have accountability within the bank. Why? Why are loans not working right. in certain countries? David, there's two buildings out past the Sistine Chapel where the real bureaucracy of the Vatican is. You're going to go into the World Bank. You're going to get appointed. There's going to be a huge uproar. David Melpass shows up. What you just said, everybody can say, is common sense at a common ground. How do you then address the executive directors, the assistance to the executive directors, and the other 9,982 people at the World Bank. How does an odd guy like you fit in at that building? <laughs> not, not odd at all. So I, I'm going to try to use common sense. So that means partly listening to the people in the bank itself, but also listening to the others, the community around. And I, I like the way you phrased it. You know, there is in the academic community a debate over what's the best way to do 
this. How do you get actual effective uh, assistance from multilateral organizations into countries that really need it? That's what I'm going to be about. That takes a lot of work. That takes a challenge. We've set in motion the reforms uh, you know, that are part of the current capital increase of the World Bank. So part of this is to implement those reforms. That means moving the higher income countries uh, away from lending, uh, from, from borrowing from the World Bank, and allow more of the resources to go to uh, countries that really okay. need it. Okay, what's, what's day one for David Malpass besides figuring out where the food court is or where <laughs> the restaurant at the World Bank? I mean, David, seriously here. I mean, at the IMF, there's a raging battle about old Europe with their votes versus the new EM and particularly China. What is your day one task to meld that bureaucracy with some sense of Trumpian political theology. I'll be over over the next several weeks. I'll be getting a good sense from the shareholders as I talk with them about what their goals are in the bank. U.S. is the biggest shareholder, so I'm I'm pretty familiar with U.S. goals. But I want to hear the goals of other shareholders. I'll be switching to be president of the World Bank. That means representing shareholders and the boards of directors. They have a they have a lot of insight into what can be done better. Uh, so listening is part of it, mm-hmm. and then also setting out the theme that we've already gone over of a core mission. If Right. think of it that way, I think we can make progress. David Malpass, Greg Ip, writing in the Wall Street Journal, you've written beautiful op-eds. I've said this before, folks. Malpass has the best English skills of anyone I know in market economics. Greg Ip, writing a gorgeous essay today on socialism. The belief of the President of the United States, not that I was speaking with Mr. Trump this morning, is the World Bank is on the edge of a socialistic institution of redistributing wealth in, in the world over to that, you know, people he doesn't like, etc. What are you going to do to make the World Bank more democratic where people in it feel like they have a voice and incentives to do good? I haven't read that article, but I don't view it as uh, uh, shifting resources. It's it's, um, making sense out of what the theme of the World Bank has been for decades, really, that there's supposed Mm -hmm. to be a graduation process that allows the resources to uh, countries that are doing better to reduce their drain, their drag on the and on the bank and put it into other countries. So I really don't view it as a fight against socialism versus capitalism. It's got to be a fight against uh, good policies and bad policies in each individual country. I love to go on your next junket to Beijing, David Malpass. You're going to fly into Beijing. You're going to speak to China about the World Bank. What will you tell them as president of the World Bank Group? Uh, I won't be president yet. I'm planning to be there next week uh, uh, as uh, still as a Treasury employee. But what I do with China is full engagement. So we talk with China about ways that they can have policies that really work better for them, that work better for the rest of the world in terms of structural reforms. Because China is the world's second biggest economy. It's very important in how the world grows. Uh, and so China has right. to interact. So we're, we have a good dialogue with them. Yeah. I have a lot of respect for their senior finance people. Uh, And so I'm looking forward to a good relationship between the World Bank and China. David, I've got like another hour of questions Uh that we've run out of time. Mr. Malpass, thank you so much. Of course, International Affairs of the Treasury Department of the Trump administration, Mr. Malpass, nominated by the dominant shareholder to be the new president of the World Bank uh, Group. We appreciate his time uh, this morning.
With us now, Gina Martin-Adams on the equity markets. And I want to talk about the word of the moment, Gina, and just let you translate it for me and Paul Sweeney. Scale. Scale wasn't in any of the books I talked about except economics books. What does scale mean to a corporate officer of a southern bank? Uh, it's a great question. I think that it's really interesting, this merger that we've come upon today, mostly because it's the biggest we've seen in 10 years, comes after a pretty big regulatory wave that really prevented a tremendous amount of mergers. But the 90s are a perfect example of what scale means for banks, right? It, we went from being an incredibly overbanked society to uh, having a more rationalized banking industry, and the result was pretty tremendous profit growth, a sector that moved from formerly being a value sector to being a growth sector in the sequence of just a decade, as that decade represented the opportunity for companies to utilize scale, scale up, um, become significantly more efficient. And so, you know, something like this, an announcement like this is probably going to be pretty good news for the regional banking group, which has been sort of beholden to a lot of regulations that have held them back. Um, from becoming more efficient enterprises and being able to utilize scale. Tom, you know, Gina, I can tell here from our Bloomberg terminal, she's up in Boston for a couple of days meeting with some of the biggest mutual funds in the business. So, Gina, what I want to know is what are you telling them about some of the volatility that we've seen in the marketplace? What kind of guidance are you giving them? What is your view? Yeah, so our view is uh, fair value for the S&P 500 based upon a subset of macroeconomic indicators is still a bit higher than current levels. Um, the shift in the Fed that ex we experienced uh, from December to January is enough to support valuation multiples. At the same time, the decline that we had in the fourth quarter of last year priced in a tremendous amount of earnings weakness. So our view is that the pain trade for stocks probably is still a bit higher here. At some point, we will reach fair value on the multiple. Um, you know, the Fed's not likely to cut anytime soon. They probably do remain on hold, and that keeps some support under the multiple. But without a Fed cut, you're not likely to get to valuations like we saw last year. Instead, it becomes a more earnings-driven market. That makes our sensitivity going into the first quarter to earnings season um, ever so greater. And we will need to get some confidence that earnings are troughing here in the first half and likely to recover into 2020 for stocks depressed too much higher. So, Gina, if it certainly felt, to me at least, that December, the market was melting down. How do you characterize uh, January here? Is it a melt up? Yeah, it's, it's a mini melt up, maybe. When we look at what melt ups really are in the past, we think a little bit longer term than um, such short time periods. Uh, a classic melt-up was the experience the stock market went through in 1996 to 2000, where valuations were expanding, prices were rising on increasing volatility, um, and sentiment was incredibly optimistic, ever so optimistic, uh, represented by tremendous inflows to the equity market. At the same time, rates of growth of earnings started decelerating and consistently decelerated over that yeah. five-year period relative to the five years prior. I'd say, you know, January is too short of a month to really classify it as a true melt-up, but certainly prices are rising, um, driven by valuations, not a lot of earnings optimism evident. I don't think there's a tremendous amount of positive sentiment to suggest it yeah, really is a true melt-up yet. Gina, one of your great hallmarks is I believe I've never heard you say go to cash. You're always someone who has a reality that you've got to be in the market. Am I being in the market now defensive? 
Do I want to buy the beat up bear market value crew? Do I want to buy the buns, the ones that have barely gone down? What say you? Yeah. So our sector model says you want to be positioned more cyclically than defensive. Certainly valuations support that notion. The idea that we are in the point, at the point of experiencing an earnings trough with recovery yet to come would support that notion. Our factor spectrum suggests that you do want to lean towards value and maybe some of the junk that's out there. And that's a reflection of the fact that uh, rates have stopped rising, yeah. at least in the interim. And frankly, when you see, like what we saw in the fourth quarter, um, defensive securities such as consumer staples and utilities outperform the broad market by more than 1,100 basis points over that. So what does that mean? It's brilliant. What does that That, mean? That type of, it's just this massive defensive trade that only occurs in a, at a point in which uh, markets are bottoming. Okay, okay, exactly. Kind of so what do you do after you see 11 percentage points of improvement off, you know, soap stocks and toothpaste stocks? Yeah, you start to move toward more cyclically oriented companies. You start to move toward more value oriented companies, the companies that have been beaten down in the corrective process because they're the companies did, that will rise fastest in an earnings recovery. Right. Paul, did we just hear Gina Martin say market bottom? I think we did. I think we did. I, this is a day <laughs> we're, we're parsing. Dangerous. We're parsing her comments. She may have to stay in Boston. Banned in Boston. Gina Martin Adams, thank you uh, so much for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.